We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Will you guys turn with me to Acts chapter 12? So we've been going through the book of Acts this year, but we took a little break in the month of July, and we sat in some of the Psalms for a month, which was really great and restful. Uh, I really enjoyed that time together. But we get to dive back into Acts right now where there's just so much action happening. There's a lot going on in this story, and it's good for us to dive into that story in two different postures. One posture of saying, this is a story that happened to other people long ago, and we're in a whole different context and culture and generation today, right? But to also go, but this is part of our story at the same time. Like, that's the second posture we take with us, is that this is our history. This is our our ancestry, in a way. And I don't mean necessarily ethnically, I mean as being part of the family of God, brothers and sisters of Christ together. This is our story. This is uh, an origin story for us in a way, right? When the, the Holy Spirit came on this group of normal men and women, and the first church, the first Christian church was formed. The first group of believers was formed. And, and Jesus said, I will give you power from the Father, When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will go out and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the first 11 chapters, we were seeing a lot of that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria stuff taking place. Uh, And then the last place we left off was we saw that started to take a turn to open up to the Gentiles. That means nations. That's all that word means. So the other nations, the ends of the earth. So there is a man named Cornelius who was a Roman soldier, uh, an Italian guy, and Peter came and visited, and he shared the good news to Cornelius and like his whole crew, his friends, his family, and they got saved. They, they joined this family. And then the church back in Jerusalem was like, wait a second, what's going on? These people, they don't follow all of our laws. They don't follow our customs. Like they don't eat the right foods. They weren't circumcised. Like, what is, how, how can you even enter into their home and still be clean under our Jewish traditions? And so Peter reports back, hey, God gave me a vision. What God makes clean, no one can call unclean. God has always been about using Israel to invite the other nations in, and he's finally accomplished that through Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that came upon us in that room that one day, came upon this house of Gentile, of other nation people. I saw it. The same God, the same spirit, inviting them into this family now. And like, praise God for that, because now here we are in Phoenix, and we get to be part of that too, right? The ends of the world. And so what we're going to see now is Acts is starting to take a turn. We're entering into this second phase of Acts, where it turns from, uh, the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. And we're going to even transition a little bit from who the focus is on in the story in the next chapter. But this is a little bit of a, a hinge chapter. It's connecting the two halves together. And so we'll, we'll see that next week Paul starts going out to the ends of the earth. But there's this 
connecting story here that Luke, who's the author of Acts, includes very intentionally to teach us something about what's happening in the world right now at this part of the story. What's happening in this Roman world where the Roman Empire is covering all of the known world to these people at this time. It was said at that time that the sun would never set on the Roman Empire because everywhere that they knew of in the world, that was governed by Rome. It belonged to them. And so at this point, though, a church has started to be established. And through this man, Saul, he gets to be part of it in Antioch. And in Antioch, it's a very diverse city of Rome, and there's lots of different people there. And so you're seeing even there in that one city, the ends of the earth represented who are coming to follow Jesus, and this church is established. And it's in that church, in the city of Antioch, where they're first called Christians. So that takes place in chapter 11. I'm going to read the end of chapter 11 right now, verse 27. And then we're actually going to go all the way through chapter 12, except for the very last verse, which we'll pick back up on next week. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. In those days, so in the days that this church was established in Antioch, and they were first called Christians. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, it's a great name, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. Remember, that's the entire known world for them. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul, who we'll learn is also called Paul. Chapter 12. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, 
it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and went to another place. Verse 18, at daylight there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, another great name, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear and listen and receive your word today. God, open up our hearts and our minds and our ears. May we be transformed by you, by your word, by your truth, by the power of your spirit, by your presence here with us this morning. Father, I ask that you would guard my mouth, anything that comes out of my lips, guard our ears. Lord, that we would be more and more drawn to you and your voice and not mine. That we would see more clearly who you are and how you have acted on behalf of your people and how you are still at work to save and rescue today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my senior year in high school, I was working at a movie theater and then a second job at Subway. I lived about 30 miles from the school that I went to, and I was captain of our varsity wrestling team. And I was also trying to maintain an over 3.5 GPA to keep my scholar-athlete status for that, you know, scholarship I was going to get for college that I never went to. And so I was tired. I was exhausted. I was overwhelmed. I was working a lot. And for a 17-year-old kid, there was a lot of pressure on me. But I felt like I needed to perform. This was a way that I was securing my identity. I was gaining my worth and my value. And I was doing a lot of this for other people so that they would look at me with their approval. And one day, before the wrestling season even started, I had found, my dad had found actually, a high school close to where we live that I could go practice at during the off season so that I could keep up with what's going on and just stay, stay honed in on my skill. And so I would drive to this school, I would practice with these kids that I was going to compete against later in the year. It was kind of weird. But one day I was driving to that and the pressure was already getting to me before the season even started. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to go into that gym and practice with them. And so I just turned off into a road like a couple streets before the school. I didn't know where I was going, but I quickly found a park. 
So I pulled over, parked the car, I got out and I just went and sat on a park bench for a little bit. And just overwhelming peace just came. Like it was a, a stilling of my spirit. I really felt the presence of God there. There was a lady there with her child just playing in the park. And she looked over and smiled at me. And it was like the warmest smile in the world. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It sounds so weird saying it out loud. Uh, but she ended up coming over and talking with me. And I don't even remember what she said. But I felt so encouraged. I felt so much peace. When I left there, I was like replenished. I tried going back and finding that park again because it became like this in my head. This is a safe space. I tried finding that park. I could never find it. I, I got on Google Maps. Like I was driving all over that neighborhood. I never found the park again. And I was convinced at that time that God had just dropped that park there out of heaven like manna just for me on that day. And that lady who was there must have been an angel or something, right? Because it was exactly what I needed in that moment. I never found it again. It could have just been, at the very least, that God helped me find that park that the city built on that day because he knew I needed it that day. At the end of that wrestling season, my senior year, my very last match in state tournament, I made it through the whole first day of the tournament. Second day, I was looking good. I was seated to um, place in the top four, and I lost a match that knocked me out of it completely. So I ended up not placing at all. And I, I walked into the tunnel of the Coliseum, and I collapsed from both exhaustion and just sorrow. Because it sounds silly. It's a high school sport. But I had built my life on it. And so sitting there in tears, my coach walked through the tunnel, and he had to go coach another match real quick. But he took time to kneel down and just say to me, hey, you are loved for who you are, not for what you do. And he walked away. And I was like, that's so stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've heard. What I do makes up who I am, doesn't it? <laughs> Which I had it backwards. God was using those two events that bookended this very stressful year full of pressure for me to build up my own identity, kind of make a name for myself, to get a status and a position for myself. He used these two events to invite me into another story, to invite me into another identity, and to invite me into a place of rest, of resting in what he has done for me and who I am because of that, not because of what I do. I think in our word this morning from Acts 12, we're seeing a similar invitation. We're, we're hearing a story about two kingdoms, really, and one that is trying to build up and establish a name for themselves, a position of power and authority over all the world, and an identity. And then another kingdom that has an invitation to come and simply rest. The beginning of this section that I, I do believe is kind of a hinge into the next phase of Acts, the beginning of this section, Luke takes time to make sure he points out that there's a severe famine in the Roman Empire. And you don't hear much about it and with the rest of what we read. It's like, what was that there for? But he takes the time to say, this kingdom, this empire that has so much power that the pride and arrogance of them says, hey, the sun will never set on the Roman Empire. 
has just been struck by a huge, severe famine and has to come to the realization that they cannot cause bread to fall from the sky. That they cannot cause the rain to fall from the sky in order to supply what their crops need. They have no control over it. And at the same time, that's contrasted with this group of people who seem to have no power, no authority in their culture. In fact, they're being oppressed by that culture. They're being beaten down by them. They're being thrown into prison. They're being killed. And yet, not only do they seem to have what they need, but they find a way to send support to others who also have need. Because they are trusting in their story, their history, of the God who did send food from the heavens in the wilderness. And the invitation is, do you want to try to build a kingdom for yourself or come and rest in this kingdom where there's a good king who provides for you. The story then continues, and it's like we, we move away from looking at this famine. But that, that, that's just like the introduction, right? But then that's not really the point. It's to set the stage for what these two kingdoms look like. And so we're introduced to this guy, King Herod. Now, here's what's interesting about Herod. Herod is actually a Jewish king. He's a Jewish man. This is not the same Herod, by the way, who had John the Baptist killed. We're, we're going to hear more about him next week. Uh, it's not the same Herod who was around when Jesus was walking this earth. This is a different Herod, uh, likely related to, many people think. But this Herod, he sees this church, this group of people who are following after Jesus. And he decides, I don't like that. Now, Herod is a king over Jewish people, even though the Roman Empire is in control. So Caesar is actually over him. But the way that this would work was they were like, hey, let's set up your little like Jewish communities and give you the illusion that you could live your life the way you want to live your life so that you'll be happy as long as you're still paying your taxes to Rome, right? And so for the Jewish kings, the little really governors over their province is more what it was like. For Herod, he wanted Rome to succeed. Because what was happening was he's the middleman who's collecting these taxes and living lavishly off of it in partnership with Rome. So while he's supposed to be not only a representative of, but leading this other kingdom, he's actually giving himself fully over to this kingdom over here. Just think about that for a second, because we're not in this position where we have kings, like none of us are in any type of royal, or, or even in this room, political authority, right? And yet, just, just think about that reality, that while you're supposed to be a representative of this kingdom over here, you have actually given your heart and your allegiance and your full motivation to another kingdom. Are we more like Herod than we think at first glance? And so Herod has done just that. And when he sees that there's a community saying, no, someone else is Lord, it not only threatens Caesar, it threatens Herod, who has power over them. And so Herod goes on the attack, and he has James killed. Now, this James, it's interesting because we hear uh, James is killed, and then later we see that Peter says, hey, tell James and the brothers. Two different James, okay? Very common name. It's my middle name. So different Jameses. The second one was most likely James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, who's still alive at this point in the story. The first one who's killed by the sword by Herod and his men was James, the brother of John. Do you remember 
James and John, the brothers who the mom came to Jesus, was like, hey, you know, it's like when you have a 35-year-old son living at home in your basement and you're calling his boss for him to say, hey, he's not going to make it into work today. Like this was, she, she goes to Jesus. She's like, hey, do you think my sons could sit on your left and right hand when you enter into your kingdom? And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking me. That's the James we're talking about here. The sons of thunder. You remember Jesus gave them that nickname? You sons of thunder. It wasn't in a positive light, by the way. It sounds really cool. Like I would love to walk around and be part of a crew called the sons of thunder today. But that's Jesus. It wasn't a compliment. They're like, hey, let's rain down fire and lightning and thunder on these people who didn't listen to you, Jesus. He's like, you guys don't understand. That's not what I've come to do in my kingdom. My kingdom is not about taking power and wielding it over people with violence. My kingdom is about invitation. Invitation to come and be with. But, you know, James grew from that moment. And James actually became part of this inner circle of Jesus' friends. There were, there were the three people who would constantly go with Jesus for certain key moments of his life. And it was Peter, James, and John. James was close to him. John, his brother, was often referred to as the disciple Jesus loved. Like they had a close relationship. And so James got to be there when Jesus had his transfiguration moment on top of a mountain where he shone with the glory and the radiance of God, where they saw this definitely is not just some human only. They, they saw what he really looked like. James was one of the three people who got to be there for that. All these amazing moments James shared with Jesus, and he gets one line about his death. Just a very quick Luke just, hey, by the way, (laughs) Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now let's move on with the story. And you're like, what? What? And then you get the story about Peter being arrested. Herod finds out, oh, you liked that, huh? The, the, the whole community seemed to like that when I killed James. What's going to happen when I take, like, one of the top guys in their church, Peter? He was one of those three that followed closely with Jesus. What's going to happen when I take that guy and I put him to death? They're going to love me. So I, he's trying to build a name for himself, isn't he? I, I liked the applause that I got from these people. What, can, what else can I do? to secure my position here with them. So he has Peter arrested, and the church has nothing they could do in response. They have no power in this situation, do they? Like, they can't go fight back. They can't go out and picket in front of Herod's home. What can they do? They, they sit in Mary's home. By the way, different Mary, too. Mary also coming in. They sit in Mary's home, mother of John Mark, and they pray. They recognize their work to do is to trust in the work of their God. So Peter gets arrested, and he's set to be killed as well. And you got to ask this question, why in the world did James get killed and God rescued Peter, right? Like, why did that happen? There's this miraculous event that takes place. You get one sentence, James was murdered with a sword. And then you get this whole story about how God sends an angel to come and rescue Peter out of prison. And he's like bound by two chains. 
He's surrounded by multiple guards. They walk through the city, and this iron gate just flings open for them. It's like the grocery store when those you step on the thing and the doors open for you. right? It just opens for them, and they can go. And then the angel disappears. Why? I think, actually, if we really dwell on this for a moment, we might see that the fate of James and Peter eventually end up being the same. But Peter shows a glimpse in this story of what James saw the fullness of in his story. What's Peter doing when he's sitting in his jail cell? When he's in prison, the night he's supposed to be called out and taken, put on trial and put to his death. He's sleeping. Just snoozing away, right? How can you be sleeping easy when you know you're about to die? Do you remember another story in in the Bible where there's peril around them? Certain death is coming and somebody is just sleeping, snoring away at rest. You guys, can you think of any other story like that? It's on a boat in the middle of the ocean or the sea with waves crashing around. And Peter and James and John and all the disciples are like, we're going to die. What are we going to do? And they're freaking out. And they find Jesus down underneath at the bottom just sleeping. And they wake him up and they say, how can you be sleeping right now? Don't you know we're going to die? And Jesus, with complete rest within himself, with peace, with calm, he comes out and he brings peace and calm, stillness and rest to the crazy storm in the sea around And you got to wonder, like, did Peter maybe learn something there? Did he learn something about Jesus and what he could do in that moment that allowed him then to sleep and rest easy? James got to enter into rest as well. James was killed by a sword in this life by King Herod. But James also knew, because he trusted in the same Jesus that Peter was trusting in in that moment. James got to enter into the fullness of rest with his Lord. He knew that that wasn't the end of the story, that he would rise again, because that's exactly what Jesus had done. And Jesus had promised that the same would happen to them. Jesus had sent his spirit, who he rose through the grave by, to come and empower them. And they had felt that and they had experienced that. The Holy Spirit had come over them. James also had rest. We don't need to feel bad for James actually actually in this story, right? Peter got a glimpse of what it means to have rest while James entered into the fullness of it. But God was doing something through Peter's story too. That he also was telling a story to the people around them, you too are invited into this rest. Now think about, you get that one line of James, that he died, but then we get one line later of Herod also dying. But it's a little more graphic, isn't it? What happens to Herod? What was it? Yeah, eaten by worms. That's very graphic. 
It's, it's very detailed. Now, here's the reality. Even if you have a proper burial, right? Probably going to happen to your body, too. <laughs> so you can go, oh, the same thing probably happened to James. No, no, no. Luke is telling a story here, and he's being very clear on his story that James dies in this life, but he enters into rest. Herod dies, and what happens? He is decayed. He is eaten by worms. That's where his kingdom brought him. And why does he die? Because he's not giving glory to God. As everyone starts giving glory to Herod for the kingdom he had built for himself, the thing he had worked so hard for. And what does it bring him? It brings him death. James, who just gets one sentence about his death, he's not... He doesn't live lavishly like King Herod. He doesn't have a kingdom of his own. He's not in a position of authority at this moment. He, trusting in Jesus, the true king, enters into rest in the fullness of life. Peter, as he's living in this moment, he's giving a foreshadow to us that you can come into this too. Think about the things that Peter's doing in this story. And I I want you just to reflect on if it sounds familiar at all. If it sounds like anybody else, okay? So Peter is being persecuted. He's being hunted down for this message of God's kingdom. And the authorities come and they arrest Peter. And actually, they're waiting for just after the Passover that they would come and bring him out and have him killed in front of all the people. And while he is in prison, he's got these insurmountable odds against him of escape. There there are chains all around him. There are guards all around him. And there's a huge iron gate that no human hand could simply slide away. And somehow, Peter, who has certain death, is figuratively given his life back. And he comes out of that rest in the prison and he walks out alive and he goes and he knocks on a door for this community of Jesus followers. And like someone else who said, I stand at the door knocking, would you answer? Rhoda comes and she doesn't even answer the door. I think that's the most hilarious part of the story. She's like, oh my goodness, it's Peter. And she's so excited she forgets to let him in, right? And she runs off. But she goes and she tells people, Peter's at the door, and they don't believe her. There's no way that's Peter. He's certainly dead. How in the world could he be here right now? They don't believe her till they see it for themselves. Is this painting a picture? Does this remind you of anybody? Now, a side note real quick, because this was a weird statement. They said, it can't be Peter. It must be his angel. There's nowhere else in scripture where we get this idea that each of us has like a guardian angel assigned to us, okay? So I just want to say that. Remember, that word is literally the translation messenger, okay? Anytime that's used. And oftentimes it is talking about spiritual beings who are messengers from God, but if it's Peter's messenger, it's probably not a spiritual being. She must not really mean Peter's here. She must mean there's a word that's come from Peter. He sent a messenger from himself. I think, I'm could be wrong, but I think that's most likely what's happening there, okay? Because remember, Peter himself does not have this authority in the kingdom he lives in. But he's reflecting the one who does. 
Jesus, who goes around preaching the kingdom, and he's persecuted for it. He's attacked for it. He's pursued for it. And he's brought in for questioning for it. And after the Passover meal, he's sent out to be killed in front of all of his followers and in front of all the people as a message, don't follow this king. And he goes into the grave and he goes into sleep. He goes into the darkness. And as he's put into his tomb, there's a giant stone put there that can't be rolled away by human hands. And there are guards set out there to make sure his body isn't taken. And an angel, a messenger of the Lord, shows up. And somehow, miraculously, Jesus walks out of that prison of the tomb. And he goes and he shows himself. And the first people who report back are told they're crazy. There's no way Jesus could be alive in here. Now, here's the difference. Jesus could calm the storm with his words. That's why he could rest easy, because he knew who he was and the power he had. Peter could sleep easy in the cell because he knew the Jesus who could calm the storm. Peter didn't have the power. He didn't have the authority. It wasn't his kingdom. He was resting in the power of another. He was submitting himself to the authority of another king. And that, you guys, is where we actually find our rest. Because we're not kings or queens. We're not the authority of our own kingdom. We are representatives. We are told, Peter actually writes this, and he's calling back to what the people of Israel were called in Exodus, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But that means, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we're ambassadors of the king. We are representatives of the king. We are not the king or queen of our own life. We represent the one who has all authority and all power and all ruling reign over not just us and our own hearts, but over all of creation. And if you can come into that kingdom, then you can rest over underneath the one who has power over all things. And you no longer have to fight and strive and try really hard to get an identity or a name or a position or a status for yourself. How tiring is that? Where did it leave Herod? But where did it leave James and Peter and all those who followed and trusted in Jesus? That's our invitation today and every day, is to stop fighting to build your own kingdom and come and find rest in the true king who loves you. He's a good king. He took on all the ills of this world for us. He doesn't send you out as Herod would have sent out his people, as Herod had his guards killed for allowing Peter to escape. Jesus is the king who steps into that on our behalf. He takes on the fullness of our sin, of the brokenness of this world, of the evil forces at work, and he does battle against them by actually giving his life over and then victoriously coming back to it. And that's what we're invited into, is to follow him in that, into the newness of life, where nothing can touch us. You might be killed by the sword, probably in this day and age, something else. One day, this body, this flesh, may be eaten by worms. But we know the king 
who will bring full restoration to all things and who is fully capable of breathing new life into these dead bones and of reviving us from the ashes and bringing us back up from the grave and we get to live eternally with him one day resting in his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.